And now, the man who takes the BS out of BS, Bill Spohn. Hello, and welcome back to the Building HVAC Science Podcast. What's our goal to create better, more knowledgeable HVAC and building performance technicians by helping these two professions better understand each other with the ultimate goal of making customers happy and healthy in the homes they live in and the buildings they work in. Today, I feel very in tune with this podcast's stated mission, which I will excerpt here for you. Building HVAC Science covers a broad array of topics in the building science and HVAC diagnostic worlds, as well as human comfort, health, and safety. This show will take a deep dive into all things that relate to buildings and people in the built environment. Today's episode, I'm very fortunate to have interviewed Joe Allen, Dr. Joe Allen, an esteemed indoor air quality researcher, presenter, and author, as we covered what Joe has observed and educated us on regarding the collision between two disciplines, building science and health science. Joe shares with us his observations, strategies, and tactics that are moving us towards an era where buildings go beyond doing no harm to occupants, but focus more on maximizing the benefit to the occupants. Look back over all the podcasts I've done. This is the 106th one. Joe joins the growing list of people on this podcast who talk all or in part about indoor air quality or healthy buildings. That includes Dr. Stephanie Taylor, Dr. Bill Bonfleth, Joe Medosh, Larry Zarker, Nate Adams, Jason Earl, Cheryl Seiko, Don Auger, Brian Kenahan, Erlen Bull, Casey Gray, Ray Wu, Ben Reed, Caleb Salibi, Steve Pescuzo, Big Clive, Ty Newell, Dick Kornbluth, and Jacques Toulon, amongst others. I'll stop talking and let you get to listen to the conversation we had together, Joe Allen and I, about building science colliding with health science. Is this the dawn of a new era? Joe, give us a little background on you in case people haven't heard of you, but they probably have. First, thanks for having me on. It's great to be connected to your audience on this critical topic. So yeah, quick background is I'm a professor at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. I direct Harvard's Healthy Buildings Program, and I also direct or co-direct another center that focuses on worker health and safety. Outside of Harvard, I'm a commissioner on the Lancet COVID-19 Commission. I chair that commission's task force on safe work, safe school, and safe travel. And doing a lot of work, like a lot of people in this industry, trying to raise awareness on the importance of buildings and ventilation during the COVID pandemic and advising and helping organizations get through this. Everybody through nonprofits, schools, universities, homeless shelters, police departments, you name it, anybody who's called to try to help them navigate this really challenging time. We spoke just before we started about the healthy buildings era and the foundations that had been laid for it and the awareness that COVID has brought to it. Something I wanted to explore with you is a healthy building or a building that is healthy for people. Is there a difference? No, I mean, ultimately, I'm a professor at a school of public health. I care about people's health. I don't really care about the building's health, right? Okay, there you go. I think healthy building is shorthand for exactly that. Buildings that actually help us keep us from getting sick, but also keep us well, the flip side of health, not just protecting us from the negative aspects, but also make us healthy. And so how do you design, operate, maintain these spaces that we spend all our time in, be it a school, an office, or even an airplane. So you also have an organization or company called Nine Foundations that touch upon, this is the aspect of overall building health things that you've identified, the Nine Foundations. So I have a company called Nine Foundations. So I've spent most of my career doing both academic research, but also doing the applied part of this, which is how do you take the science and put it to action? 
to help improve worker health. And so my company's called Nine Foundations, and it's based off a report we wrote on my Harvard team called The Nine Foundations of a Healthy Building. We wrote that years ago, and then I licensed that, the know-how on how to do this, founded a company, and used that company as the vehicle by which we take the science and apply it into companies navigate this healthy buildings movement. What is a healthy building? What are the technologies they can and should use? What are the technologies to avoid? How do you think about the changing how you operate all of these buildings, which has been where health hasn't been the North Star for most organizations when it comes to their buildings for decades? So what are some of the aspects of keeping the building well, keeping it healthy? You did talk about, well, I guess, design, operation, and maintenance. Why don't we just touch upon all three of those areas, first in design. Yeah, well, I think I do a lot of work and have participated in many design charrettes for a long time and tried to add a public health voice to that table where it's been absent. So in the charrettes, right, you're going to get to the people who are determining what can be spent. You're going to get the architects, the designers. And a lot of times things get, they say, value engineered out of the building. And I see my role as making sure that health doesn't get value engineered out of the building, which it often does happen. And by the way, I don't think anyone's nefarious here. I don't think people are saying, well, I want to make a sick building. It's just that the great research in our field, in the indoor air quality field, the public health field, hasn't fully permeated through the market. So maybe the firm doesn't know about the latest research on higher ventilation rates and what it means for infectious disease or how the materials we choose in our building can interfere with our hormone system. So a lot of it's about that education and bringing the public health science into the conversation where really it's been absent. So that's on the design phase. Like, can we get it right from the start? And I tell you, Bill, a lot of this comes from my prior work in consulting before I was full-time on tenure track on the Harvard faculty, where I was investigating with colleagues and resolving sick buildings. And we just saw this over and over and over again, that we had set up buildings and therefore people in those buildings for failure because of the design decisions that were made early on underperforming materials, poor ventilation systems, really just because public health wasn't part of that conversation. So that's on the design phase. Same thing happens on the operational phase. So building performance slips over time. We all know this. Buildings change over time. And if you're not continually or thinking about how you operate your building focused on health, well, then that slips over time too. In other words, you can't just say, this is a healthy building when I designed it, slap a label on the outside of the building and think 10 years later, it's going to perform the same way. It's just not. So that, when we think about the operational part of it and the maintenance part too, it's about how do you make sure that if you did make good decisions, that they're being followed through as the building changes over time. Or if you had a building that really wasn't designed up to par, can you make those changes next time you make a renovation? How do you always make the better renovation? And better in that case being a renovation that focuses on improving the health of people in the building. Where do you think the voice comes into the conversation? And I would separate between like commercial and residential the voice of health? Is it just absent from the discussion in many cases? I think it had been absent. I mean, I think we should probably distinguish what's pre-pandemic versus post. I think a lot of people now are, your industry knows this, but like I've been talking a lot lately that my neighbor talks to me about MERV 13 filters. Yeah. (laughs) That didn't happen before the pandemic. It's a party topic now, right? (laughs) Everybody knows, right? Yeah. Where those conversations just weren't happening before the pandemic. So the awareness is fully change. We can talk about that. But in terms of this entry point for the conversation, I'd argue that this field has a huge role to play in that if you think about these building systems and the people who are at the design conversations or the inspection maintenance conversations, if you think about yourself as being in the healthcare business, which you are, it probably changes how you're going to talk about this stuff. 
It's, oh, I got to come in. I got to talk about filters. Okay. People probably are bored about filters and ventilation. But if you say, hey, this matters because it helps protect against COVID, influenza. It's going to help against wildfire smoke. It improves your hormone health. It's good for mental health, cognitive function, productivity. Well, that's a whole different conversation that people are really interested in. My neighbor doesn't care about MERV-13 filters. She cares about staying healthy from COVID-19 right now and then has now extended that to say, well, wow, these filters help against other things too. But the entry point is the health conversation. That's what the public cares about. They don't care about the finer nuance as a science podcast. That's great to talk about all that. And you have to have the chops there, of course. But the entry point to the conversation is something we all care about. And that's our health, the health of ourselves, our loved ones, our coworkers. Do you think there's a fear or hesitation for talking about health because of just liability, perhaps? I think it's fair. And I think there's, wow, it's a great topic to get into because I think there are concerns about liability maybe the other way if you're, let's say you're overstating it. So I'd just be maybe a caution. You want to talk about it, but you want to be sure it's grounded in good science. And this is why we write these reports and others have written these reports. You stay grounded in the science, you can feel good about it. If you start overstating claims, and you've probably seen a lot of things come out in the market, they've always been in the market. Hey, kills COVID, 99, whatever percent. That stuff can get a little hand wavy or a lot hand wavy. But I don't think it should scare anyone off from having these conversations and saying, well, we know things like good ventilation are associated with all these better outcomes. And you can point back to reports from Harvard or any other university has been putting out this kind of stuff is a safe way to do it. My audience tends to be heating and air conditioning contractors, building performance, building scientists, those kind of things. What's a good resource? What's a good place to start to learn? Because not everyone can be an expert immediately, but it sounds like to enter in the conversation, you have to have some foundational knowledge. Yeah, for sure. Look, I think the ASHRAE has lots of great material out there and they have great material even that they put out after the pandemic. But I think some of these other reports we've written are a better entry point in the sense that it may be, well, your audience is technical, but if you're trying to talk non-technical, think about how to talk about this differently. We wrote that report, The Nine Foundations of a Healthy Building, which has a section on ventilation, really for the public. Like, here's what it is. What is it? Why do we care about it? What do I need to know? So it's not going to have the technical detail you're looking for in other reports, but it's an entry point. I'll also, I hate doing this, but I'll give a book plug. We wrote a book called Healthy Buildings. It's written not for other indoor air quality scientists. We've been talking to each other for decades and saying the same things, quite frankly, over and over. The public hasn't heard that message. And so one of the things we focused on that book is we tried to make it really accessible for the public. There are some technical things in there, but it's, I hope, digestible as an entry point. And maybe for your audience who's maybe really deep on the building science side or the ventilation side, you know all this stuff. But maybe there are other aspects in that book that are helpful. If you're looking for an entry point to talk about healthy materials, and it's not something you've thought about, was a whole chapter on healthy materials. There's a chapter on healthy building certifications. So what's good, what's bad? what to look for. I co-authored it with a professor at Harvard Business School, John McCumber. He's an expert in real estate finance. We go into depth on the business case for healthy buildings. So getting back to the bigger question, how do you have these entry point conversations? Well, that's also a really good entry point. You're talking to a business owner. Yeah, they care about the health of their people. But if you enter with, hey, this is just good business. And by the way, this professor at Harvard Business School is telling you healthy buildings are good business. Okay, that's got some weight to it. We explain it. We give you the almost the talking points. 
Now you have multiple entries. Now you can talk about health. You can talk about, hey, pure business case. You can talk about energy and energy savings or all of it. And then that leads into the deeper technical discussions. Right. Absorb those talking points, be able to convey them with the knowledge and research that's been done up to now. You talked about business case. That leads me to the thought of synergy. There's other things besides health. What are some of the synergistic benefits of healthy buildings? Well, I think we have to think holistically about healthy buildings. And maybe I'll talk about the business case and then lead into these other, what the synergies are. I think it's a great question because I think you can talk about this in multiple levels. So you could take it on the individual productivity level. We've done work on air quality and cognitive function, and we estimate that the benefits are in the order of six to $7,000 per person per year when you improve indoor air quality, you improve ventilation. Okay, so that's important for a worker. In the book, we take it to the business level. What if you roll all of that up into all the people in a business and look at a pro forma, look at the accounting, the financials of a business, and we find 10% gains to the bottom line, profit on a business. Take it to the another level, the investor or developer level. Colleagues down the road at MIT have done studies showing that these healthy buildings command higher rents per square foot. Well, if I'm a developer and investor, that's really attractive. Go back on a fourth level, take societal or these macroeconomic things. Look at the work by Bill Fisk. Greater than $20 billion benefit to the U.S. economy if we improve indoor air quality. So now you start to take these, talk about synergies or multiple levels. Hey, I can make an argument at individual level, the business level, the investor level, a social level, and it becomes really compelling. Now we're taking this, our field here of air quality, and we're able to talk to different audiences, policymakers, business people, business leaders who are, yeah, they care about people's health, of course. And they also care about what it might mean for the dollars. What's it going to cost me? And what's the benefit? What's driven you in this direction? You have a tremendous amount of energy for this topic. <laughs> Did this like click at a certain point or so you've been like on this on-ramp for a while? I've been on the on-ramp for a while. And yeah, I'm energized by it. I'll tell you why. It came from the sick building work I did. It got very frustrating to see over and over cancer clusters, disease outbreaks, sick building syndrome, you name it, and find out that all the time it's just underperforming buildings. And with just a little bit of love and attention could be corrected. I never came across one of these places I was having an issue that couldn't be fixed. And honestly, it didn't cost that much money to do it. So when I went to Harvard, I switched to Harvard maybe, I don't know, eight or nine years ago, full-time. Started to think, well, how do we flip this and develop and design buildings to be healthy in the first place? We're not always chasing these sick buildings. So I'm passionate about it. I'm passionate about people's health. There's a reason I'm at school of public health. I love the field. I love the mission. And to me, it's how do we make sure buildings are part of that conversation? Because I tell you, I didn't get a lot of building training while doing a public health master's and doctoral degree. I learned it in the field. And there's a disconnect. We always talk about disconnects in fields, medicine, public health, engineering, building science, not always talking together. It's just such a tractable and solvable problem. This is what frustrates me. We can keep a lot of people healthy if we just do the things that are crystal clear in the science. We're not inventing anything new. And it's not like some new study just published last month that figured this out for us. Decades of this science have pointed out the right way and we just haven't done it. And when the pandemic hit, that's the first time it was a big wake-up call to everyone outside of our field that, oh my gosh, buildings really do matter. On a global scale, people finally woke up to this. So it feels like a real moment where we can leverage that to get these changes we've been talking about for decades and get them done and make sure healthy buildings become the norm. Moving to more of a personal level, 
What was it like to speak at that White House conference? And first explain for the audience in case they haven't heard or seen the conference I'm speaking about back in November, I think. Yeah. So I've been an advisor to the White House for the past year. And this fall, the White House held its first ever summit on indoor air quality. Think about this. Think about this. We've been talking about how important this is. The White House used its most effective weapon, the bully pulpit. Last winter, President Biden put buildings on par with things like vaccines and therapeutics, put buildings in that list when it came to the pandemic response. The White House signaled this is important. It was the first time. And when the White House plants its flag and says, we think it's important enough to hold a summit on a topic, and that topic is the indoor air quality, people pay attention. I've been talking to the multinational companies. They're paying attention to that message. You know who was at that conference? Every department. Department of Energy was there. CDC was there. EPA was there. NIOSH was there. Everyone participating in this movement because the White House, President Biden is saying this is important and it changes things. And in fact, we can talk about some changes it led to directly. It's not a coincidence. A few weeks later, ASHRAE comes around and says, in six months, we're going to put out a new ventilation standard for infectious disease. If you don't think those two things are connected. So this is the power. So what was it like to be in that room? I was honored. I felt privileged. I was invited to open the event with opening remarks. And during the event, I had to step back a few times and look at the sign, the White House Summit on Indoor Air Quality. This was actually happening in the room with great colleagues, Lindsay Marr, Rich Corsi, and experts from the medical community, all the departments. It was a real moment. And I knew it was a signal. I've heard some people say, well, what came out of that? Look at those chain of events. I see what's coming out of it. And I see what's coming out of it coming for the rest of the year. So yeah, it felt like a moment. It's like our field arrived at the highest level of government saying, yeah, we agree with you. This matters. We've been saying it matters for a long time, but it was a little validating. You just speak about it. I did a little bit of background research course, which is easy to do. Just Joe Allen <laughs> building health and you get got tons of links that come up. I think you mentioned something with regard to low cost air quality sensors is being a, perhaps a stimulant for action or how would you characterize that? Two things. Yeah, I think you could think of it that way that it's a catalyst for action in the sense that these new lower cost sensors are making the invisible visible for a lot of people who never had access to this kind of information. So you think about what it took in the past. You'd hire someone like me, an industrial hygienist, go out, take an air sample, send it to a lab, data come back a week later, I write a report, so one person reads it. So these new lower cost sensors have democratized this. Anybody, they're not cheap, but they're certainly not like they used to be thousands of dollars, a couple hundred dollars. Anyone can take one of these, go into a place and kind of get a sense of what's happening in there. What are the particle levels? What's the CO2? What's the temp, humidity, a couple other things, VOCs. And so it switched the power dynamic. Now an employee can go into an office and not have to call the facilities team and say, hey, something feels off in here. They might go to the facilities team with data. Say, hey, the CO2 is 1,800 parts per million. Something's off here. So that's a massive ship. And I think companies can't ignore that anymore. It's a good shift. And look at Boston Public Schools. First school I know of deployed air quality monitors and are publishing the data. A parent can go and look and say, what's the air quality in my kid's classroom? We've never had that kind of access. So that's one. I think the other way it's revolutionizing things is it starts to merge healthy buildings and our climate crisis and thinking about energy conservation and buildings. I think these smart buildings and lower cost sensors are the path to reconciling 
this apparent conflict. Well, if I want to help the building with better ventilation and higher filtration, I'm going to pay an energy penalty. But look, there's all this money flowing into climate. We have a climate crisis. Buildings consume 40% of global energy. How do I rectify this? Well, we start monitoring our buildings. We can be sure, we can verify that we're providing a healthy indoor environment at the same time as making sure that we're not overdoing it. Why are we dumping 30 CFM per person of air into an empty conference room? I think there's a lot of promise there, and it's just early days. We're measuring right now a handful of parameters, real time, but that'll keep growing. I'm really excited about where I see is this convergence happening with healthy buildings at the center, the green building movement, energy conservation, healthy building movement, better ventilation, better indoor air quality. And how are we going to do it? Well, it's going to be through a smart building overlay where we monitor all of this stuff and adapt in real time. So you're constantly optimizing rather than the old paradigm, which is like, I'm going to have an energy efficient building that with terrible indoor air quality, I have a healthy building and we ignore my energy. Well, that neither one of those makes sense. Yeah. Listeners to my podcast know the house I live in, net zero high efficiency house that has a CO2 control on the ventilation air. Because it's such a tight house, we absolutely have to have ventilation air. And we just have it set at a set point. And a lot of people are very surprised that these kind of things are available. It's a product. It's not a customized engineered design. So like you say, they're starting to percolate and move into the building industry. I like the way you stated at one point, the collision between two disciplines, building science and health science. That's like almost a bumper sticker <laughs> for nerds like me. <laughs> we touched on it a little bit, but I really think we have to force that collision between these fields. Like I said, I didn't get the training I wanted or needed at a school of public health on the business science side. I know people who are trained in business science probably aren't getting the epidemiology, toxicology, physiology, some of the basics of public health in their training. When I get back to that work I was doing on the sick building side, I used to run a division that focused on forensic investigations. And half the team were people you probably classify as people like me, public health training, good toxicology, biostatistics, okay, epidemiology. But the other half were building engineers, mechanical engineers. And we never went out alone on these forensic investigations. There was a disease outbreak in a hospital. We didn't send the public health people alone, and we didn't send the building scientists alone. We were paired up, locked arms, hip to hip. I would walk buildings with the building engineer. And he would drag me into projects too and say, hey, I need a health eye on this. Like I get the mechanicals. I don't really understand this. And so you realize as we're doing these projects, we would never not have that pairing. But then you go out in the world and the training is separated. It's like, we have to force these collisions. I teach a class at Harvard now on healthy buildings and try to force these collisions. I get students from the School of Public Health, Harvard School of Public Health and Harvard's Graduate School of Design. You start getting the designers, the architects. And you do force these collisions. And what's magic in the class is you start to realize we're all in these silos. We're talking about, we all use the terminology from our fields. And then you realize like, oh, we can't actually speak to each other because we're so talking in our fields. So I think a lot more work has to be done there on that, on forcing the collision between the building health. and. I saw the collision in real time. I don't know. Are you aware of Joe Stebrick's Building Science Summer Camp? Yep. Okay. So Stephanie Taylor and Bill Bonfleth both presented. So there you go. <laughs> I mean, that's it. Every medical field versus building science. That's right. The other interesting thing they did, and this was all documented with the help of Lou Harriman and others, they actually improved the conditions of the space for a large gathering this past summer in August. So details are elsewhere, but it was very interesting that the approach was taken and it's moving off of just concepts into real 
application. When you talk about building systems and the building shell, I consider that as part of the building system. Do you think that's widely understood or are people still approaching it from it's the equipment and the building has little to do with it? What's your reaction to that? I think probably people out of our field think about it as separate systems, like a lot of things are siloed, but clearly they're not. So I do think we have a ways to go there as part of that education component to show how all these things are tied together, including the materials we choose as the building envelope and the actual systems. But I guess my sense is that they're really treated as separate or independent out in the world. Whereas you point out and talk about your own house, you just talked about the improvement you made there, linking this. Hey, it's the building system. It's also about the envelope and the relationship between the two. But I tend to think they're still siloed out there. What do you feel if there's a consumer, just a homeowner or a home occupant, their family living space? What are some things they should pay attention to just at the very simplest level? Yeah, that's a really good question. This goes back to the real basics. If you think about, it depends on the age of the building, I would think about the legacy hazards right away, asbestos lead, if you're in an older home in the 70s or earlier. I think about that right away. I think about some of the basics, like making sure you have a, an exhaust over your stove. We see particle levels that look like a bad outdoor air pollution day in Beijing when people cook. But yeah, exhausted to the outside, not just the recirculating hood there. The forehead grease spreader, yeah. Yeah. I think about radon in homes that are in the lower level. Radon, it's an environmental hazard that has a risk factor, unlike anything else we really see as an environmental hazard. So at the current EPA limit of four picocuries per liter, that's their action level. The risk is 10 to the minus three, 10 to the minus two if you're a smoker. So one in 100 to one in 1,000. Well, we regulate most environmental exposures at 10 to the minus five, 10 to the minus six, one in a hundred thousand, one in a million. So radon, make sure you're dealing with some of these basics. Think about the water quality that ties into the lead issue, but also there's other hazards in water, particularly some of these newer hazards like the forever chemicals. I also think there's some absolute basics. We wrote a report at Harvard called the 36 expert tips for a healthier home. Kick off your shoes when you come in, you're controlling dust, things like that. Have a fire extinguisher handy, like carbon monoxide detector. So it's interesting, that conversation about the home, what would you say are the basics? Like We quickly move away from these maybe more detailed discussions on ventilation rates, and that's important, and filtration, but like absolute basics. Do you have the safety things in your home? Are you taking care of these really well-known hazards like lead, radon, exhaust in the kitchen? Just really simple things. Do you have any comments on nitrogen dioxide in gas ranges, gas cooking? I don't know if you saw this report just this week that estimates, I want to quote the exact number, it's over 10%. Yeah, it's 10 or 12% of asthma. I think I just saw it yesterday morning. Yeah. Associated with, I think a lot of people were shocked by that. I think those of us who have studied this for a long time are not. It's a great example, by the way, of indoor air quality science that has been locked up in indoor air quality journals. So that's not a new finding that there's a health concern associated with gas stoves. But it's making waves in 2023. Why? Well, someone's put a new lens on it. There's this whole conversation about electrify everything. And very smartly, people are saying, if you tell somebody, hey, you have to electrify your stove because of climate change, well, that feels abstract to a lot of people. And am I going to spend a couple hundred bucks, a couple thousand bucks to swap out something in my home that's working just fine because of quote unquote climate? Not a lot of people in the position to do that. But wow, you change that story and say, this is influencing your kid's health. Like right now, oh, okay, all of a sudden, but I spent a couple hundred bucks, a thousand bucks or more 
to protect my kid, you better believe it. I think it's a really smart framing, even if it's a climate and health issue like so much of what we talked about in buildings. But it does make me think, why does it get traction now when we've been talking about this for decades? Is it just the, I guess, the pandemic and health and being inside buildings and everybody heard about the positive and negative aspects of isolation? Yeah, that factors in. I think it's incumbent upon all of us, like you talk about these phrases or bumper sticker stuff, like trying to come up with new clever ways to talk about the same things every day to see what sticks. That means, yeah, we publish in great peer-reviewed journals. We're doing podcasts like this. We write reports like that nine foundation of a healthy building. I write op-eds. We do conferences and not just scientific conferences. So it's like, I don't know what works, but you try to throw everything you have at it. And honestly, I think, how many times can I talk about, I don't know, ventilation and filtration when it comes to COVID, but it's been three years of repackaging the same message because I said it on February 9th, 2020. Ventilation, filtration, portable air cleaners, humidity, right? It's in the air. It's nothing new. So anyway, I think that's the trick. When something's really important like this topic and we see the science coming out early and our field sees that science early, how do you then package that up into a message that resonates with different audiences? The scientific audience, the public, someone's a home builder, your industry. We talked again before we started about is the message sticky in the healthy building era? What's your prediction? What's your projection? Is this an era that's going to be two years long, three years long, 10 years, or is it going to permanently enter the mindset? I think it's permanent. I think we've entered the health first era. I opened my book with a new preface just this fall talking about 9-11. And 9-11 ushered in a 20-year security-focused era. Think about public spending, public attention, and it was all focused with a security lens. Pandemics change societies. I think we're entering a 20-year health first era. Early in the pandemic, I was naive in the sense that I thought that once we got the message out, this is airborne and buildings matter, things are going to change. T didn't, took a while. Then I also thought, well, maybe if we get a handle on this, people are just going to forget about it. I don't think that's the case anymore for a couple reasons. One is the scientific literature has been rewritten on airborne transmission. There was debate about how influenza was spread, important to scientific debate, but for too long, it focused on a strict droplet precaution approach. But look at the top journals, New England Journal, JAMA, Lancet, Science, all publishing articles in the past couple of years talking about airborne transmissions, the dominant mode of transmission for respiratory viruses. That's changing practice in hospitals right now. So to the question of, does this go away? It's already changed practice, not going away. The scientific literature has changed. A second one is that the public's perception has changed. I talked about my neighbor, these low-cost sensors. You have an entire media, social and traditional media ecosystem that are like virus hunters now. When did RSV become a topic that was front page news in any prior year? Maybe influenza, we'd have a bad season. You'd see a one headline, okay, hospitalizations are up and disappeared. Now it's every day. You have people, you have a whole ecosystem focused on this. That's not going away. I think a third is that the regulatory apparatus is changing. Look at the White House summit. They have the Clean Air and Buildings Challenge. CDC is working on new proposed higher ventilation targets. My Lancet COVID-19 commission published proposed higher ventilation and filtration targets. ASHRAE two months ago announced they're working on this. I know other organizations are working on it. That tells you that the regulatory approach has legs on it. It's moving. It's not just going to be, okay, it was a temporary emergency target. Now we're going to, when COVID, we get a handle on COVID, whenever that is. This tells me that's really not going to go away. I think those are some key drivers that keeps me optimistic that, okay, people are getting, there's COVID fatigue. There's no doubt. But it tells me that 
just because maybe the public isn't so much talking about COVID, COVID, COVID all the time that the healthy buildings changes. The landscape has so fundamentally changed that it's not going back. At the minimum, there's the vocabulary and the, I want to call it mindset, but at least the fertile ground in someone's mind to discuss this because they've heard enough about this before. They're well said. One I wanted to jump into, you you mentioned in the course of our discussion was humidity and humidity ranges and humidity control. Can you talk a little bit towards that? Yeah, I think this is one that it's really important. I think that's obvious. I also think it's to deal with in buildings. This is why I think at least when I talk about controls for infectious disease, you could jump to ventilation, filtration, portable air cleaners. I'd love to do a lot on humidity. I think it's really difficult in buildings to manage. But I think the science is really clear on the benefits and I think there's two parts of it, or more than that, but I think personally think there's two main parts to this. One is what's happening in our own bodies. And it's really clear. Well, you think about the first line of defense are your lungs, and it's the ciliated cells in your lungs and the mucus. It's going to capture particles. We have a mucociliary escalator. Capture particles, you breathe them in, and the mucus, the cilia beat, you bring them up, you swallow this stuff harmlessly all day. What happens when it's too dry? Well, you produce less mucus, and the cilia beat less quickly. So you start getting to low relative humidity, and your first line of defense in your lungs starts to break down. It's not working. The escalator isn't working as fast, and you're not capturing as much in the first place. I think that's a key driver and why you'd want humidity in kind of that sweet spot. You probably heard 40 to 60%. A lot of people talk about that. I think that's key. The other side is what's happening with How does that humidity influence transmission and viability of the virus? And there, I think there's good evidence, too, that these lower humidities, we see greater viral viability, but also greater ability to travel in indoor air. And by that, I just mean based on particle size, right? You have greater evaporation, so you can have a lot smaller, even smaller particles, smaller particles, respiratory aerosols are going to travel greater distances, stay aloft longer. So you put all that together. I don't think it's going to be one of these things where it's one or the other, but you put all of it together and it's pretty clear that humidity plays an important role in infectious disease transmission, not to mention comfort and things like that. Sure. So by too dry below 40%, RH is too dry. But in the too moist, is there a negative health impact or is that more about what could happen to the building? Now we start to talk about the building materials, componentry things. Yeah, I think it's both. Yeah. So it's uh, thanks. I didn't really talk about what happens when it gets too high. There's a building issue and a human health issue. You start to get levels where you're going to start getting mold growth and things like that in building, which could, depending on how bad it gets, could lead to a real big problem. But certainly it's something we want to manage in a building from a human health angle. Yeah. So this is why it's a sweet spot. And I also think it's really difficult in a building that's not designed for this to say, well, how are you going to, in the cold winter, dry winter months, how are you going to manage humidity? You start introducing water into a building. You just got to be careful. Yeah. When on the high side of humidity, is there a negative biological impact? Not just biological growth, but actually something like you talked about the cilia and the mucus. Yeah, it does look like that, that you have, at least in terms of depending on which virus or bacteria you start, it looks like a little U-shaped. What's the right word? Survivability, viability is worse in that 40 to 60% range. It depends. I mean, I don't think it's this hard and fast rule either. I've been encouraging people that in the dry months to get to at least 30%. It's not this on-off switch. It doesn't have to be so binary. I even think about airplanes. Look, I've done a lot of research on airplanes and indoor air quality. Most airplanes down at a couple percent relative humidity, but the newer plane, Boeing's Dreamliner 787, gets up to 20, 25%. It's not in the sweet spot, but I've been on that plane and you definitely notice. 
the difference. So it's great to have these ideal targets. At the same time, I also like, hey, how do we just move the needle even a little bit? And you can see the benefit. Very good. We covered a lot today. I really appreciate you coming on. It's been a long time trying to make this arrangement with you, but I really thank you for the commitment of time to this podcast. And I'm sure that the listeners will enjoy it. And I'll put some links to some of the resources that you mentioned so that people can get smarter on this and let's keep this healthy building era going together. Yeah, I agree. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. I thought you were great. I think the questions you asked were terrific. I think the conversation was great. And let me just say, I really appreciate your audience and the people in your audience who are actually out there doing the work every single day to make sure our buildings are healthy. They're the unsung heroes of daily life, but also certainly through the pandemic. So thanks to all you out there. You're welcome. We'll take care. Bye. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Building HVAC Science Podcast. I also host the ResTalk podcast where you can learn more about the world of home energy ratings and peripheral topics. This episode will drop on January 13th, and this is only just a few days before the beginning of the fourth annual HVAC symposium sponsored by the HVACRschool.com. Unfortunately, tickets are sold out for live attendance. And I don't know how you are about travel planning, but it'd probably be hard to make arrangements at this point, just five days out. But you can certainly attend virtually and watch some of the recordings afterwards. So that's HVACRschool.com forward slash events, or just go to that page and look for the events. And you can learn more about attending some of the great sessions that are being offered, sponsored by the mind of Brian Orr. It's a great thing. Okay, take care, everyone, and hope to have you back next time listening to Building HVAC Science. Thank you.